Welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. I'm your host, Mark Titus. Well, on today's episode, we get to spend time with my friend Amy Gulick, who is an award-winning nature photographer and writer. Amy's stories and images have been featured in Outdoor Photographer, National Wildlife, Audubon, Sierra, and a lot of other publications. She has won more awards than I can enumerate right here. We both share the prestigious Daniel Hausberg Wilderness Image Award from the Alaska Conservation Foundation. And Amy, above all, loves salmon. We talk in depth about her two books, The Salmon Way and Salmon in the Trees. And if you're listening for the first time and you've never heard any of my work or our extended work about wild salmon, this is the best primer I can think of. This is an engaging, thought-provoking, fiery, and complete conversation with Amy about these animals, these beings that we love so very much because they give their very lives so life itself can continue. And a reminder, if you're enjoying this podcast and you listen through Apple Podcasts, consider giving us a review and a rating. It really helps get the word out and get our podcast out into the world. And also, if you want to join this team and join what we're building, consider making an investment in Ava's Wild. We are taking investments right now for as little as $100 into the company through WeFunder, which is a crowdsourced platform. And you can find the ability to do that right on our website's homepage at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com and consider joining us making the next film in my trilogy, The Turn, and also becoming an owner, an actual owner in this company that we're building here together. All right, so without further ado, I give you Amy Gulick. Welcome. Welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. So happy you're here in person. Can you believe it? <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. So um, this is an opportunity. I love the long format of all this. You can edit things out. You can ramble, which is super cool. Um, you know, in, in the film world, we're always cutting and cutting and cutting. And we can kind of let this ramble and go. And with that in mind, I would just love to hear your story. <laughs> Tell me your story oh, from, from a, a wee little tadpole. <laughs> Where on earth do you want me to start? <laughs> I, I think, you know. Um, my salmon story? Just your my sense, story? Uh, your story. Your story. Your sense of place. Like how did you, how did you come to find this roots in this very magical place here in salmon country? Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> all right. If we, if we can ramble. A little bit. We can I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll at, go at way well. back. Yeah, please do. <laughs> so I grew up in Illinois, uh, in farm country, um, you know, kind of right on the border, kind of like really of like suburbia and, and rural, 
you know, cornfields were a few blocks from my house and and that kind of stuff. And and I was one of those feral kids, you know. Love feral. <laughs> who, you know, refused to wear shoes and was awesome. always outside and climbing trees and skin and knees. Totally. I was just gonna say scraping my knees were always bloody, mm-hmm. um, catching frogs and salamanders and and you know, I, I I can look back on all that now and just realize uh, you know, I was just kind of being a normal human being. I mean, that's what human beings have done forever. Um, and at least in my childhood, I was lucky to to grow up that way. But I think it, I was also, you know, honing my observation skills, clearly, you know, of nature. Just I, I would love just being outside and just watching stuff, you know, birds. And again, uh, I spent a lot of time on ponds and like little streams because that's what we had, you know, available and in, and in kind of remnants of forest, whatever was there. So just observing and looking up at the clouds and uh, just, you know, my imagination was whatever really it wanted to be. Like nobody was telling me how to think or or how things were. I think I was figuring it out for myself. And that's, and again, I just think that's being a normal kid. Really, absolutely. So, so yeah. I don't think there's anything terribly special about that. <laughs> but 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 you know now I look at kids today, it's like oh my gosh, you know I I I feel I feel for kids who don't really have the opportunity to do those things um, because I think everything that I am today really stems from that childhood and all that time spent outside and just imagining and thinking about stuff and and just making observations and putting stuff together. I think. And, the, there's there's such a uh, confluence of people, maybe it's just our proclivity to gravitate towards humans that we gravitate toward, but on this show and people, you know, in the work that I do and you do, I'm sure, have that same origin story. Like, it's creeks, it's tadpoles, it's shiners, it's crawdads, it's trout, and then sort of a matriculation maybe up into the <laughs> salmon world, but that's that's such a great commonality, and brings a smile to my face. I had the same thing growing up. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, so I think maybe the connection, if and there is a connection, I, I think, but like to, to maybe that childhood and then now, you know, how immersed I am in salmon. Um, I, I have to say, you know, when I was growing up, all I knew about salmon was that they came from a can. Hmm. And, and I loved them. And it was, it was such a, I don't want to say an exotic taste, um, but it was a very different taste for somebody growing up, you know, in the middle of corn country. Um, but I really liked it. And I think as a kid growing up in that kind of environment, I think maybe that was a little unusual. It was, it's, but I just remember that, like opening that can and just being bowled over by this very strong, bold, not only taste and smell, but the look too. Mm-hmm. It was this incredibly orange you know, flesh was in this, stuffed into this little can. <laughs> and I just remember really liking it. And I remember kind of taking my fork and maneuvering it around the skin. And there were always bones, you know, mm-hmm. in there, the little vertebra. And I didn't really know what they were, you know, but I, I liked them. They were crunchy and they tasted good. And I don't know, just the whole experience about that one little can of salmon um, definitely left a lasting impression. And I also remember looking at the label. You know, and I don't exactly remember what was on the label. I'm sure there was a boat and maybe, you know, some semblance of ocean and some kind of fish or something. But I just remember looking at that label and just thinking of some faraway land, because mm. I was nowhere near the ocean, mm. but some faraway land where these incredibly strong, bold, 
fish came from. And it just kind of sparked my imagination. So every time this can would show up on the counter, I'd, you know, kind of run down and, you know, use the electric can opener and just, you know. <laughs> it's pretty precocious for a <laughs> Midwestern I youngster. Know. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I just remember... I just remember really liking salmon and just it left an impression on me. Again, didn't know anything about the fish, where they came from, who caught them, who lived with them, what their life cycle was, but it left an impression. I, I can see that now. Um, and then fast forward really to, oh gosh, my early 20s, I guess, and I moved from Illinois to uh, Washington State. You know, So now I'm landing smack dab in, in, in salmon country. Um, I still didn't know anything about salmon, um, but my husband, that's the whole reason why I moved. Is I was going to ask, yep. Yeah, my, my husband-to-be, was uh, he is a native Washingtonian. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I always knew I wanted to live west, so that was an easy, easy transition for me. And I just remember one day after moving here, and we were living kind of the north end of Lake Washington at the time, and it was probably September-ish, and uh, he just comes tearing into the house, and just kind of screams, the salmon are running. And then he runs right back out the door and like leaves the door wide open. I'm like, the salmon are running. What does that <laughs> even mean? <laughs> and where are they running to? And all I knew is that I had to run after him and see where he was going. And so next thing I know, we're like running, you know, through neighbors' backyards and jumping over fences. And finally, we kind of get to the you know, plow through, through some little forest area and um, there's this little creek. And I think it was, it was probably Juanita Creek, mm, you know, yes, on, on I know the, it. I've waited it. Yes. Yeah. And again, I didn't know that I just moved there, mm. you know, and so I'm like, where are we going? And, you know, what are we doing? And, um, but anyway, here we are in front of this creek and there's just these like flashes of silver and, and a tail here and a head there and more splashing. And, and all of a sudden, like these wriggling bodies are kind of all next to each other. And I'm, it's just absolutely transfixed and, and, and the weird part for me is I'm sitting there and I'm, we're not saying a word, right? And he is so transfixed on this. You know, he grew up with this. Like he knows, he knows this drill. He knows mm-hmm. this ancient ritual, you know, that's yes, been going is. on, you know, mm-hmm. forever. And I don't, this is like my first exposure to it. Um, and I would, but I was so transfixed watching these salmon, you know, or these, and I, I don't even think I knew that they were salmon at the time. Um, but anyway, so watching these fish just work so hard. They were just so determined. And I think that was the lasting impression there. It's like determination. It's like, what are they doing? Where are they going? <laughs> you know, and like, what? And why are they swimming upstream? Like, right. this seems to be a lot of work. And, and again, I didn't know anything about the salmon life cycle, but I, I knew that these fish were incredibly determined. And then I also knew that there was something really special about these fish that lived within Chris, you know, mm-hmm. who is my husband. I mean, they, these fish were so much a part of who he was. I could just sense that. We didn't even have to talk about it. It was, wow. it was just so obvious at mm-hmm. the time. Um, so, so then fast forward another few years, and now Chris and I are on, in Alaska, and this was my first time in Alaska, and we're out on the Kenai Peninsula somewhere. It was kind of September. It was rainy. You know, it was just kind of that kind of, I, I want to say miserable weather, but it's perfect weather for salmon. Mm. <laughs> you know, like it's very salmon-y, salmon-y. weather. Yep. And I didn't really like know that, that at the time yeah. either, but I, I've come to learn that. And we're um, 
again, driving somewhere and all of a sudden kind of screech, you know, another one of these, <gasps> the salmon are running, you know, kind of thing and pull over. And we next thing I know, we're running up a <laughs> kind of a mountainside now and traipsing through forest again and, and, and now following this very winding creek. Um, and this time, um, I'm all I'm seeing are like blobs of red hmm. And and very blurry blobs of red, like the water wasn't like perfectly clear. And I'm, I'm like, what the heck? I mean, look, it looked like kind of like blobs of blood, really, kind of like in the water. And then and then I'm noticing that these big red blobs are 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 moving upstream, like slowly by slowly, they're kind of inching upstream. And then we get closer to the stream. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, here these are fish. These are salmon. They're different than the ones I saw. Um, in Juanita Creek, um, but here they are again, incredibly determined, very strong, very bold, making their way. You know, fin by little fin kick, and uh, you know, and holding like holding steady, right? Like they never tend to like go all the way back down sometimes, but they're holding steady, making their way up that stream. And again, no words are spoken. <laughs> you know, you can hear the croaks of ravens. And just you know, the you know, maybe the drips of rain, you know, hitting the the leaves on the forest, and and the splashing again of their their tails, and and just this very solemn, again, I want to say kind of ancient ritual, you know, that's now that's now really a part of me, yeah, you know, and 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 I think I was kind of forever changed. It's like wow, and 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 I do remember finally kind of breaking the spell. You know that we were that both Chris and I are kind of under just being transfixed. You know, watching this. You know, uh, what's been happening for millennia, mm. um, and and here we are. This is kind of our moment in history, like watching this ancient thing going on before us. And finally, I, you know, I, I am a very curious person by nature. We can definitely talk about <laughs> that because that's another you know way that I got to where I am now. But. Um, I, I just couldn't help it. It's like, okay, like where, you know, wh- where, where are these fish coming from? And, mm-hmm. and, and Chris said, you know, he just said the ocean. I'm like, okay, so we're in a stream, freshwater stream. They came from the ocean. And then the, you know, my next question is, well, how did, how did they get here? Like, how did they find their way here? You know, from the ocean's a big place. <laughs> mm-hmm. How did they get here? And he just very calmly, again, never even looked at me, just kept his eyes focused on the fish. And he just said, it's one of the greatest mysteries of life. So here you are, across the country, across the continent. You've discovered this mystery. And you, I love the word you use. Curiosity is just such a blessing. So how did you tumble into the work that you do then? Now you're here. How did you find your way upstream <laughs> to, your, <laughs> to, the, <laughs> to the work that you have been called to do? That is so beautiful. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, going back a little bit, you know, again to childhood, um, um, I, I, I was always just fascinated with storytelling. Um, but I can look back on that now and it's like, you know, that's just the normal human trait. Um, you know, before, before I could read or write, I was telling stories and that's, you know, how I was trying to make sense of my world and making connections and then sharing, you know, that with, you know, whatever, whoever my community was at the time, you know, my family and friends and that kind of thing. But that, that's just a human thing. I mean, you know, literacy has only been around for a few centuries, you know, maybe at most. So, you know, prior to written and, 
um, you know, that kind of and uh, written and, and reading, mm-hmm. you know, a, a language. I mean, what did humans do? How did we connect with each other? We told stories. You know, we sat around the campfire and and we told stories. So again, I don't think there's anything unique about that. But but I think my fascination and penchant for storytelling just I just never outgrew that. Um, so when I was young, before I could read or write, I was telling stories, I was drawing, trying to illustrate the stories. And then somewhere along the way, I think I was about eight or nine and my family got one of those, you know, we're, we're going to laugh at this, right? But the, the Kodak pocket camera. Oh you know, God, I remember I mean, that's you know, the first thing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> camera in everybody's pocket, which, you know, we all kind of uh, laugh at now because not only do you have a phone, but you have a camera in your pocket. But <laughs> it, it was the first pocket camera, and it was really revolutionary. And <laughs> and I just remember getting a hold of that camera, and when I figured out what it could do, it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, this is my tool of choice for illustrating these stories that I'm so passionate you know, about telling. So, again, fast forward, when I moved you know, from the Midwest out to the Northwest, um, that passion for storytelling never really left me. I mean, I was doing, you know, I went to college, majored in business, was working in the financial industry, was horribly bored, <laughs> but it was, I, it was a way to make a living. Um, and then when I moved out here, I had the opportunity to kind of follow my passions a little bit more and try something different. And so I was working in commercial film mm-hmm. uh, for quite a while. And on the side, I was you know, pursuing stories and, and publishing them. And, and then that took off more and more, and then I really started doing that more full-time. So I'd been working on um, doing a lot of magazine work um, at the time, and my stories focused on uh, the outdoors, whether it was outdoor recreation or wildlife or natural history or something like that, and really enjoyed that, and I continued to do that work. Um, but somewhere along the way, I really wanted to dig in and go more in-depth and spend much more time um, on one topic and putting together a book. And I just, nothing probably makes me happier than being in a green, drippy, wet forest. And so the Northwest is just perfect for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, But there's another place north of here, of Washington State, uh, Southeast Alaska, um, and about more than 80% of Southeast Alaska is the Tongass National Forest. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to dig into that area and, and really tell that story. Not that that story hasn't been told many, many times, but I was really looking to tell a new story of an old familiar place. And the Tongas desperately needed a new story. Um, when I was digging in, um, the old story was was a very divisive one. The timber wars uh, divided communities. Um, you know, it was industrial scale clear cut logging that wasn't sustainable, but you know, how do you, you know, how do you change this way of life that a lot of the communities there um, were were dependent on? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we were destroying these forests, mm-hmm. you know, this incredible forest, which is really like the last best place of what is North America's coastal temperate rainforest. So I was wanting to dig in and, and really tell this story, but, but in a different way, um, in a much more positive way, um, and get people thinking a little bit differently um, about this place. And so I was wanting to do a book. Um, and so I started, before I actually spent time there, I was um, doing a lot of research and kind of digging in and just trying to figure out what, what makes this place so special, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what makes it tick. And somewhere along the way in my research, I came across this 
incredibly dry scientific paper. (laughs) (laughs) And And that just lit your world on fire. Right. (laughs) Well, in a way it did. In a way way it did. This is the moment I'm actually, we're we're (laughs) intuiting each other's thoughts here because I want, it's that moment. Where is that moment you gave yourself permission? It sounds like you're leaning into that. Right, right. and I and I will preface this by saying I'm not a scientist. I'm I'm an avid naturalist. I love science, but I'm not the one doing the science, and I'm certainly not the one you know communicating in in what is often kind of a secret language, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, among scientists. Sure. And that's not to. It sure seems that way. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and and again, I mean, you know, every. Uh, you know, every profession has its language, and 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 science definitely has its language. But sometimes there's a lot that's lost in translation sure. between science and and the rest of us mere mortals. Mere mortals, I love that. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so I'm I'm struggling through this paper, and I don't even really know how I came across it. I think I just Googled, I don't know, you know, Tongass and forest, and and I don't know something, maybe connections or something like that, and. And I think the title of the paper, something along the lines of um, the upstream flow of marine-derived nutrients in a terrestrial environment. (laughs) Right? Let me guess what that refers to. Right. But right there, I mean, I almost didn't get past the title. Right. It's like, oh, God, God. really? (laughs) How sexy can you (laughs) get? Do I really have to get through this? Yes. And anyway, something something compelled me to, to dig in and... I really struggled through this paper, but I, I, I made it to the end, and I almost kind of just put it aside, and then all of a sudden something, something went off in my head. A light bulb clicked or blinked on, and I just said, do you, do you mean what this paper's trying to tell me is that there's salmon in the trees? Because if that's what this is all about and that's what this paper's really telling me, then that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. And it is. That is the coolest thing. Like the coolest thing. And if I can help people understand how it is that there are salmon in the trees, then they'll understand what makes the Tongass in Southeast Alaska what it is and yeah. why it's so special and, and not just special for its own sake and for the wildlife and the wild communities that you know, depend on this connection between salmon and trees, but the human communities um, yeah. that also depend on this connection. And so that was the moment um, where I, I just couldn't get this idea out of my head. And when things don't leave your head, that's when you know you have to set out and, and pursue them further. Absolutely. What keeps you going through this? I mean, you, there's no guarantee that this is going to be successful or whatever, whatever that means. Um, but you got to get up every day and feed yourself and move forward and pay the bills. And w- what, what kept you driving you to do this? I, I think a lot of it was that connection. Mm. Um, I, I, I realized, you know, as, as a kid, the things that I was the most passionate about, and, and really found interesting were ecological connections. Um, it wasn't just, oh, here's a bear or here's a fish. It's like, how do these things interact? And, and, and why do they need each other? Or how do they benefit each other? Mm. Um, how does it all fit together? I'm definitely kind of more of a big picture thinker. Um, and, but I, I also think that other people really like making these connections too. And this this remarkable connection between salmon and trees in Southeast Alaska and the Tongass, um, it's not intuitive. It's Mm. not like you're probably going to figure this out on your own, although 
as I just said that, I'm I'm quite certain that Native people have figured this out long ago, and we're very aware of these connections because, as I've come to learn, that's how they think. They think in terms of connections and how everything fits together. And I think in the Western world, we we tend to compartmentalize things, and we're not always putting things together. And, and we're very impatient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, yes, and I'm one of those, too. I'm a product of that. Struggle. I know. The struggle is real. <laughs> But but yeah, so I think I think what keeps me going, and you're right, there are lots of ups and downs in a project like this. I think when you take on a much longer term project, you're just opening yourself up to more to more ups and of course more downs. Um, there's always going to be periods of of uh, I almost want to I don't want to be melodramatic, but despair. Mm-hmm. Sure, you know totally. you're like you're like Grief. oh my gosh, yep. what what was I thinking? Yeah, you know, how on earth did I think I could actually pull this off? What happened last week. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. No, it's it is true. That's that's why I'm so curious about this. It's I want to learn from you and glean how you keep this this spark alive to create this. It's it's you're birthing something. It's beautiful, and yet it's hard when you're in the middle of it. It is. It is because yeah, right. You 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 can't really see. Let's say you can't see the end. Like you know, you know what you want that finish line to be. Sure. But but there's no blueprint on how to get there. That's right. You know, like no one's setting this out for you and saying, oh, you need to go here and here and here and meet with this person and film this or write about this and uh, you have to figure all that out. And it's, and it's hard, <laughs> as you know. But I think what, in both of my book projects, well, I think what's really kept me going is just this, this uh, the, the passion for the subject, certainly. Mm-hmm. But then my passion for wanting other people to get as excited about it as I am. Yeah. And to see how awesome, you know, whether it's salmon in the trees and this connection, see how awesome that is. Or, you know, in the second book, which you know, we can get into the salmon way, how awesome people's lives are who, who live with salmon and what incredible ways of life salmon allow people to live. I just, um, I, I, I want to believe, I have to believe, right, that if, if people understood these things and could see them the way that I am experiencing and seeing them, then I think that they would come to the conclusion that, wow, this, this is important. This is really important. And why on earth are we cutting down that forest and, and jeopardizing that connection between salmon and trees? Or why are we um, you know, destroying salmon habitat you know, mm-hmm. that, that the salmon rely on and therefore the people that rely on the salmon uh, rely on? Why, why would we do that? Um, so I think those are the kinds of things that both keep me up at night, but keep me going yep. uh, at the same time. I just, I, I think so much of, um, you know, I guess like, you know, the environmental issues that we face today that, that, and, and environmental issues are social, social issues. There's no separation there. We tend to compartmentalize them, but they're they're one and the same thing. But I think so many of these issues that we face today, if people just understood how all these things work and how all these pieces fit together and that we are so, so dependent on healthy forests and healthy oceans and healthy rivers, um, then I think we'd be making a lot uh, better and different decisions. I agree. Salmon are a connector, for sure. Um, and we're going to talk lots more about them. But... I sense amongst our peers and even folks that are not necessarily in our circle of 
salmon devotees, um, there is another connector that supersedes all of that, and that's place. What is it about this place? And this place, I, I, I'm going to broadly say salmon country. Every, every part of this bioregion where salmon streams connect a terrestrial location. What is it about this place for you that is that connector or that constant source of curiosity and wonder? Oh, yeah. Wow. It's <laughs> a great question. Um, I, I think we all need a home stream. Hell yeah. And <laughs> That's so great. Thank you for that. Yeah. And, and by home stream, you know, it could be, doesn't even have to be water. You know, but but in this case, uh, you know, in salmon country, it clearly is. Mm -hmm. You know, that home stream is, it's a river, it's a stream, it's a lake, it's maybe it's the big ocean itself. But it's a place that, that we can identify with. It's a part of us and we are a part of it. And and I think when you have that kind of connection to a home stream, um, you, you you're grounded, Right? You, you, you feel grounded. You also feel a sense of uh, responsibility to take care of it. Definitely. Um, there are other people who that's their home stream as well. So, you know, you have this shared interest and this shared caring uh, of your home stream. Um, I just think it's I just think that idea of a home stream is super important. And whether you live in Illinois, you know, there's you, there's a home stream there, whether it's a patch of forest or a pond or Something, something that grounds you, uh, you know, to the earth itself. Um, and I think in our modern Western society, where, where most of us who are of European ancestry, we were, we were separated from our home stream through our ancestors, you know, who, who came here. So we don't have really that long-term connection, long-term meaning thousands of years um, you know, connection to a place. And I think a lot of Americans tend to be kind of ungrounded. Um, and we don't even know it, you know. And But when you're ungrounded and you're not connected to a piece of the earth, um, I think it's really easy to make really bad decisions hmm. about that piece of earth. It's If we're separate from it and then we harm it, it's kind of no big deal. Because it's not a part of us. We're not harming ourselves. We don't really feel it that way. And, and I think so much of this is subconscious or it's unconscious. I don't think that we do a lot of harm intentionally. But, but by being separate from, you know, that home stream, I just think it's easier to, to not get too worked up about uh, destroying a stream or cutting down a patch of trees because we weren't connected to it in the first place. I think that's profoundly wise, and I feel that too. And I also feel, as you were intonating, a deep sense of longing, a desire, a longing, a yearning for that home stream. Um, I, I, I've, I've got Irish roots and been, um, maybe it was watching the... Uh, the Banshees of Inisherin, which we just watched recently. It was very, very, very Irish film. And um, I've been feeling a yearning for those kinds of roots. And I think that's why as a transplant here, my folks came also came from the, the Midwest uh, when I was a little baby, um, six months old. I, you know, I do have a deep yearning for the roots here. And there is, as you say, there is a very different characteristic that comes and evolves out of 
not only just identifying a place as a home, but as a part of you. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Those decisions that you make about how you interact with this landscape are profoundly determined by that nature of that relationship. Definitely. And and I think where I really learned that concept of a home stream and, and caring for it and that it's a part of you and you are a part of it was from spending a lot of time with people in Alaska who are so, so clearly rooted in where they are and, and to a particular home stream. And it's really the first time I actually heard that term, too. Hmm. Was, I'd never heard the, the, the term home stream before until hmm. spending a lot of time with salmon people uh, well, in Alaska. Well, you, you were also uh, riding the, the wave here of um, progress through this, this question line. Uh, I was just going to ask you about how you came into the salmon way. Uh, and... This is this beautiful book I'm holding in my hands right now that uh, I'm lucky enough to have a copy of. It, it's it's gorgeous in and of itself, and it is really personal and evocative uh, with folks that we know a lot of these people ourselves. And, and if you're just coming in cold, you get a sense of knowing these people after you read this book. What was the entry point into these communities for you? Yeah, so so backing up a little bit. So mm-hmm. so Salmon in the Trees was my first book. Yep. And and that focused on again this remarkable which I should really talk about. This uh, remarkable connection. Ba- back her up. Cuz I, I keep right teasing everybody, right? And they're like, "Well, how is it? Why are, you know, why are why are there salmon in trees? How are there salmon in trees?" Um so I'll explain that real real quickly. So uh, Tonga's National Forest, again, yep. more than 80% of Southeast Alaska, the last best uh, part of North America's coastal temperate rainforest. And last best, when I say that, it's like the most intact. Mm-hmm. You know, the ecosystem is still functioning um, uh, as it as it should. Um, so Tonga's National Forest is about the size of the state of West Virginia. And there are 5,000 salmon spawning streams like throughout that whole forest. Um, this part of the world has some of the highest densities of both brown and black bears. Mm. And so these coastal bears have the luxury of feeding on salmon, which really helps them put on weight, which helps them survive winter hibernation. So certain time of year, kind of late summer, early fall, all these salmon, millions of salmon start leaving the ocean and they start streaming into these 5,000 salmon spawning streams. All these bears are, you know, hungry and they're waiting for them. And... Bears don't really like being around other bears. They're not social animals. But here's all this, you know, this concentrated food supply that's coming in. And so a lot of bears will gather on a lot of uh, different um, salmon streams. Mm -hmm. And because they don't really like being around each other, um, often what happens is the bears will come into these streams, they'll grab a fish, and then they'll take it. Um, away from the stream and into the forest. And so what happens, you know, think about millions of salmon, 5,000 spawning streams, incredible numbers of black and brown bears, you know, on all of these streams. Over time, a lot of dead salmon or parts of salmon, remnants of them, carcasses, whatever, end up on the forest floor Mm -hmm. um, thanks to the bears. And over time, all these nutrients from the bodies of the fish decompose into the soil, and the trees absorb them through the roots. Now, the big light bulb moment (laughs) for me, it's like, I think it's easy for all of us to understand how fish can fertilize the forest, but that light bulb moment of salmon in the trees really blinks on um, when you start to realize, so scientists 
you know, they, scientists are very curious by nature as well, and they were trying to quantify um, how much salmon bears eat. Hmm. Like, that's kind of how this whole remarkable connection came about. So that the only way you're going to quantify how much salmon bears eat is to sit on salmon streams and watch how much salmon bears eat. Well, mm-hmm. they noticed, too, that bears don't really hang around the streams, especially the less dominant bears. So they're like, oh, there goes a bear with a fish. I need to go follow that bear because <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how much salmon is this yep. bear eating. So this, the scientists were going into the forest, and what they were noticing was like, oh, my God, look at all the salmon on the forest floor. Like everywhere, um, and then and then the next thing they did is they looked up and they're like, "Hey, <laughs> look how big these trees are! <laughs> this is incredible." Could there be? Yeah, and, a and connection, then, right? And then the next thing they did is they started to take. I wonder what's in those trees. So they started to take tree core samples from the trees back to the lab. And then they analyzed the DNA of the tree, and what they found was ridiculously high concentrations of a marine uh, nitrogen. Mm-hmm. So it's a nitrogen variant. It's called nitrogen-15. Ridiculously high concentrations of nitrogen-15 in trees near these salmon streams. So nitrogen-15 comes from the ocean. So how is it that this marine ocean nutrient gets into the trees? Um, it's, it swam there. It swam there in the bodies of salmon, um, and it was accumulated in the bodies of salmon from all the time that the salmon spend in the ocean. So it... it it swam there in the bodies of salmon, and it was delivered to the forest floor by the bears. I always, I always call the bears like the UPS FedEx <laughs> delivery guys. They're, they're already <laughs> you know. brown. It's perfect. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. They're already wearing the uniform. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so that's how salmon get into the trees. And it's just this incredible, again, light bulb moment. And I've given this presentation many, many times um, to People in Southeast Alaska, you know, who live there, to people in Ohio, to mm. people in Florida, like all over. And it's always the same. Um, when people learn about it, they're like, oh, my gosh, like that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. And then in the next breath, they say, oh, and it makes perfect sense. It does. Which it does, right? But it's not intuitive. Or to most of us, it's not intuitive. But once you learn about it, it's just, oh, my gosh. You, you can't unsee it once, exactly. once you've been exposed to it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I like that you say it that way because it's something we can't see. Mm-hmm. And yet once you learn about it, it's everywhere. That's right. And it's in everything. Yeah. I mean, like the salmon aren't just in the trees, right? They're in the bears. They're in the blueberries. They're in the people. Yeah. They're in the orcas. Like they're in everything. And that's, to me, that like that's the magic of salmon. Well, I think this is a great way to dovetail into place, people occupying place, home stream. There's some practical reasons for living near a home stream. There's food there. What else is there? What what led you into the salmon way of life? What was the entry point for you into that? Right. So so when I was traveling around southeast Alaska working on salmon in the trees, I, I had the, the good fortune to visit most of the communities um, throughout southeast. And if you've ever spent any time in southeast, there's there's about three dozen communities, and they're all really different from one another as far as kind of just the, their personalities and, and the kind of people totally. who live there, like, and, and people who are in Southeast, uh, they, they'll joke and they'll, 
they'll tell you about all the rivalries, you know, among the communities. And, and usually it's in jest. But, you know, there's just a feel. There's a feel to Ketchikan. There's a feel to Petersburg. There's a feel to Sitka. There's a big, big feel to Juneau, you know. Um, they're, but they're all different. Yep. Um, but as I was traveling around and meeting with people, um, I noticed, you know, the common language that everybody seemed to speak. And then this thing that, that tied everybody together was salmon. Yep. Um, you know, you, you could argue about a lot of different things, but when it came to salmon, there was just this common bond, you know, common language that people seemed to speak. And that really struck me. Um, I, I, was, I was very struck by that. And then the other thing that really struck me was uh, how salmon um, built communities. Mm-hmm. And um, it seemed like whether I met with people for 10 minutes or 10 days, I always left with salmon in my hands, and I was so incredibly touched by that, um, especially when I learned just how much work goes into whatever it was they were putting into my hands. So it could have been like a frozen filet or a jar of smoked salmon mm-hmm. or a Ziploc bag of dried salmon strips or didn't really matter. I, I came to learn just how much work and how much love went into what was now in my hands. And what I learned was people weren't just giving me salmon. They were giving me a piece of themselves. Yeah. And there's no greater connection between human beings than, than to have that kind of shared uh, bond uh, uh, between you. And again, I, I, I was a stranger in their land, and yet... Um, I was welcomed with open arms and, and, you know, again, went away with salmon. There were times I was brought to tears. I was just so touched by that um, because it was just such a profound way of, of sharing who they are, you know, with me. I came to learn that. And it made me kind of look at my own life. It's like, what do I, what am I sharing with people? What am I giving? Um, and I realized not a whole lot mm. as far as as that went, but I also was kind of looking at where I live and it's like, well, we don't, we don't have that volume of salmon. We don't have that abundance of salmon anymore. And, and again, going back to that longing and that home stream. And I realized it's like, oh my gosh, like I, I wish, like I wish more than anything that we had that abundance uh, here in the Northwest still. Mm-hmm. And many of us are working hard to try and restore a lot of that, but I, it just made me realize um, it actually made me feel not only a sense of in- intense gratitude um, to Alaska and the salmon ways of life that, that the fish allow people to live there, but it also in- invoked in me this incredible sense of loss and pain um, because, because that, those ways of life are just remnants, really, of here in the Northwest of what they once were. Um, but anyway, so traveling around Southeast, just realizing how important salmon are to people, I started thinking bigger. And it's like, okay, if, if salmon are this important to people in Southeast Alaska, are they this important to people throughout the state of Alaska where salmon are? So that led, that was, I think, my entry point into the Salmon Way. And um, so the Salmon Way, it, it celebrates and it explores the relationships between people and salmon throughout the state of Alaska. And it was really kind of a departure for me um, as far as it's incredibly people-centric. Not that my other work hasn't included people, but my past work was really more about ecosystems and why ecosystems matter to, to people, but to everything. The Salmon Way is 
people-centric all the way. It is about people and their ways of life um, that the salmon make possible. Um, and I was just, I, I, I think living here in the Northwest and again, realizing what we once had mm -hmm. uh, as far as salmon and ways of life and seeing um, in Alaska, the abundance is still there and salmon ways of life still exist uh, and, and revolve around these fish. Um, it was kind of this, again, this juxtaposition, but I was just so intrigued that there is still a place um, where the lives of people and salmon are linked. And I really wanted to know and learn what are, what are your lives like? What's it like, you know, to live with salmon and to have that be such an integral part of your life. So that, that was my entry point uh, into the salmon way. What did you find? What did you find when you oh started entering these communities gosh. and these homes and these fish camps <laughs> and uh, these huts and forest dwellings in, in this, this beautiful book? I just found uh, incredible, very rich ways of life. And, and I, 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 and it's interesting. The word rich came up a lot in my mm. conversations. It didn't really matter who I was talking with. So I, my goal was to meet with a, uh, the greatest diversity of people I could in, in many different geographic locations uh, uh, in Alaska where salmon are. I mean, Alaska is a huge state. Um, I couldn't get to every salmon stream, um, <laughs> but I tried to get to kind of like the biggest... Uh, geographical areas where salmon are, you know, so Bristol Bay, Southeast Alaska, the Yukon Kuskokwim area, mm -hmm. the, the the big Copper River, a um, uh, few other areas <clears throat> as well. And I met with Alaska Native people, you know, whose entire cultures have been built um, on salmon for thousands and thousands of years. I met with commercial fishermen who catch and sell salmon you know, for their livelihood. I met with sport fishing. Uh, uh, lodge owners, guides, um, clients, you know, people who are doing this more for recreation, and then just kind of everyday Alaskans who, you know, maybe just have a, uh, you know, I don't know, let's say a government job or, or something like that. But this is how they spend their, their free time uh, is, is fishing and uh, smoking, preparing salmon, filling their freezer. Uh, really, but this is how they choose uh, to spend their free time. So met with a, a wide diversity of people and this word rich just seemed mm. to be this theme that came, that came up over and over again. And um, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you a story because I think it was probably one of the most profound realizations for me, especially around this word rich and wealth. Um, so I was on the Kuskokwim River, uh, which is a big river system, and I was about halfway up the river, so about 255 miles uh, from the mouth. Very small little village, a native village of Napaimut, uh, which is less than 100 people. It's, it's more seasonal than anything. People are showing up from, say, Bethel, which mm -hmm. is uh, uh, closer to the mouth of the Kuskokwim and more of a population center at, at 6,000 people. Um, so people are showing up. Uh, upriver, but, but when the salmon are showing up, mm -hmm. so in June. And I had the good fortune to spend some time with a family there. And uh, a woman named Shelly uh, Leary, she is Ingalik, she's Alaska native, and um, she was in her smokehouse uh, on the, at their fish camp, and she was putting up king salmon uh, in the smokehouse. And it was it's one of those, again, kind of overcast, dreary, Misty, drizzly, kind of cold days. Salmony. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's that 
perfect salmon weather, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. it can be a little hard on human bones, you know. <laughs> and the night before, they had been up. You know, she and her family had been up till you know, I, you know well past midnight because they had a good catch, and they, you know, now you've got to process all those fish, and so they were into the wee hours of the morning processing the fish. So a lot of these fish were hanging in the smokehouse, but you have to tend to them. This is a this is a long process, you know, to go from fish to say again that Ziploc bag of dry strips. Um, it's it can be like about a two week process, and um, so Shelly and I are in her smokehouse, and it was just I just felt so good in this smokehouse, mm. and I wasn't really sure why. Um, I think a lot of it, it, it was warm. It, again, it was kind of cold and drizzly outside, so it was warm. It was dry. That in- unbelievably delicious smell of smoked fish is it's permeating my hair, my skin, my clothes, my brain. You know, it, I just <laughs> felt really, really good in this smokehouse. And it wasn't, I, I, I was aware that I just felt really good, you know, and it was, a, and it was just a cozy place, a nice place to be. And then... Shelly starts talking and she starts kind of telling me some stories. And, and one of the things she said that just so uh, to this day is just, it's never going to go away. It's just like etched in my brain. And she just, she just said, she said, um, I was, I was taught to always be ready to have food for the winter. When the smokehouse is filled, I feel good because I know I have enough. But when the smokehouse is empty, I feel poor. And and it was just kind of, I, I, her words kind of seeped in. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I just realized this profound difference between why I felt good about her full smokehouse and why she felt good about her full smokehouse. Again, I felt good. It was more kind of immediate gratification, like delicious food. I'm in a warm, cozy place. This just feels great. And for her, it was more, um, this was food for the winter. This was the equivalent of having money in the bank. This was long-term security, and that's why she felt good. And I just realized the stark differences between our own lives and, and again, this concept of, of, of what does it mean to be rich and what is, it, and what is wealth. And, and I realized, like, this delusion and illusion that I have lived under really for most of my life, this, this delusion that there will always be food. Even though I'm not fishing, I'm not hunting, I'm not growing, and I'm not even storing it. And it's just this idea that I've never really had to think too hard about where my food comes from or the possibility of its scarcity. And Shelly lives under no such pretense. I mean, this is and, – and, and it just put – again, put my own life into very stark perspective, but it just made me realize – there's probably no greater feeling of well-being than food for the winter. Like, you know you're going to get through the hardest time of the year. Like, that's a, that's a really, I would feel very comforted by that. And she clearly does. Um, and she's not the only one. You know, so, so this feeling of, you know, what does it mean to live a rich life? So, again, you, you know you're set. You know, you're secure for the, you know, the hardest time of the year. And there's a community of people that are, that are pretty much all doing the same thing. And in times of abundance, you're all sharing. But more importantly, in times of scarcity, you're also all sharing. Mm. And, you know, the, this idea of, you know, that we have in the Western modern world that we can all be independent and live on our own is is just a that's just a big delusion and it becomes quickly shattered 
when something bad does happen. And the other the other part of the story with Shelly is so we're we're sitting in her smokehouse and I'm I'm understanding what it really what long term security really means. You know, it's it's food, it's community, it's knowing that you're going to get through hard times together. I mean, there's there's no better I think sense of human humanness really than that. And salmon does that for communities. Um, but the other thing she, the other story that she told me, she said, "Oh yeah, I, I, I was in Seattle not too long ago. I, you know, had something I had to attend to, and I, I had uh, a friend from the village was with me, and we we're walking around the city, and we we're looking at all the tall buildings and all the crowds of people, and we just, our first thought was." What are all those people going to do when something bad happens? What are all of those people going to eat? And then the next thing she said was, we were really glad we were going home. <laughs> and again, it just put in such stark perspective to me, you know, what, what is a life? You know, what does it mean to, to be human, uh, really? And Salmon... Um, that, that's, I think for me, this particular book, that is what I've learned more than anything by spending time with salmon people is what is a life and, and what does it mean to live uh, a life well? And, and salmon, salmon help people do that. Wow. Um, we're going to have to have a part two. Uh, <laughs> I, I so much to unpack in there and I'm tracking... <laughs> On so many levels, uh, as you were as you were rolling these ideas out, uh, those were things that I was thinking about. Um, this this idea of food scarcity. Sadly, there's too many people in this country that are hungry today, children especially. And if you ask a person like that, food is uh, the rest the, the rest of us who are lucky enough to have food on command or when we feel hungry don't really understand that because it is such a ba- – we require energy to keep going as an organism. And most people in this country, um, that, that's a good thing, don't necessarily feel the acuteness of that. But there are people that do every single day. And I think they would have a very different perspective than the typical Western outlook on this. Now, cut right to the nerve on – Shelly's visit down here to Seattle. And I think about that all the time. You know, if the shit goes sideways here, like there's not a single person, average person on the street is not going to know how to put energy into their body. Oh, and totally. That's, that's kind of terrifying. So I want to not dwell on the terrifying aspect of that, but on the unifying aspect of, I think what, what you also observed um, was this idea that in scarcity, in good times, in bad times, there is this community. Mm-hmm. And we're also, there's a dearth of that here. You know, it, it, it isn't quite the same. And that's, I, I think that's why my heart is in Alaska so much. I, that I identify with, I yearn again, long for that. Mm-hmm. So once again, the food, this salmon bringing us together in that profound way. And the other piece though, which I, I kind of want to segue uh, into is um, into the inarguable notion of food and the nature of food. Doesn't matter if you're right or left or blue or red. Any color in the spectrum doesn't matter who you love or go go home with at night. None of that matters. We need food. 
as an organism to keep moving forward. So this, I know you've been very active as an activist in protecting salmon. And you and I have, and amongst our, our peers and our friends, have looked at food as a way of leveling the playing field to have discussions about places like Bristol Bay, which of course is a giant food production place. So I, I would love to hear from you on how that notion of food has all, you know, clearly come out of the salmon way as a book, but also in, in the work that you continue to do as an activist to protect salmon habitat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And food, you know, there's another word, you know, so I, again, I, I keep using the word rich because that's really one thing I, I just learned, you know, that it be, because people, uh, I, I just, let me go back to the word rich just for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter where I went, but, but particularly with, I think, Alaska Native folks who, again, for millennia, for since time immemorial, this is how their cultures have survived and, and thrived. And I, I heard the word, you know, we are rich. We are rich. We are rich people as long as we have the salmon, as long as we have the home stream, as long as we have the land, we are rich people. And most Western modern people, if you went to some of these Alaska Native communities um, from your, uh, you know, very limited world perspective, you, you would not, the word rich would not come to your mind. Mm. You know, you, you might think, oh, you know, no, this is a poor village or, you know, people are living in poverty here. But, um, and by Western standards... They well, many people are at or below poverty level, but that's defining, you know, a rich or poor life in a very different way. Um, but but every most people I met with just kept no, we are rich. We're the richest people in the world, and and they fight hard, you know, to 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 maintain their traditional and customary ways. Um, but it was it was when I, again when i first started meeting particularly with alaska native people and i would ask them you know what does salmon mean to you tell me about your relationship with salmon and they'd all look at me so here's our another word right and they just say oh well they'd look at me like i was a little crazy and they just say well you know duh salmon are our food they're our food and and i you know i was of course looking to go deeper than that it's like okay i i, I clearly can see that that they're mm-hmm. your food but you know, tell me more. You know, what do the fish mean to you? You know, how did, do they bring your family together? And they, what I came to finally understand, because again, most people just say they're our food. And what I came to understand is that their their food is who they are. There's no difference. There's no compartmentalizing. Like here's food. Here's people. Here's our house. Here's you know. Here's the stream. It food is who they are. And in the Yupik language. The the native word for fish, I, I believe it's nequa and or neka. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but that there the Yupik word for fish is also the same word for food. So to me, that just tells me everything. And it took me again several years of working on this book to understand when they say salmon are our food. What they're really telling me is salmon are who we are. And uh, that was just, for me, another big, big, profound insight um, because I had never thought of my food as who I am. 
you know, you are what you eat. You hear that all the time, but it's, you know, I, I was just thinking of that in terms of, you know, more of a health aspect. You know, it's like, well, I'm not a carrot you know, or whatever, but maybe I am. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So food, again, food is everything. Um in 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 those cultures, but I've again, I think what I think the salmon way has helped me understand myself and my own life way better than I than I did. I think before starting this, because again, now here in my own life, it's like, okay, what am I eating, mm-hmm. and where does that come from, and how is it grown, and who is growing it, and and do I live in a land of abundance in some way that I can now share? Um, what I'm fortunate to have in abundance and how can I uh, help support my own community through food. Um, So I've really kind of changed my own ways of eating and thinking and certainly sharing. Um, And I've taken all of that from salmon uh, and the salmon people. But But the big difference to me, you know, between where I'm living and then again in Alaska and people who are living, not everyone in Alaska has a relationship with salmon, but those people who do, um, again, the big difference is uh, the, the food that I'm eating and now sharing and, you know, trying to connect with my own community through, it's all, it's all, uh, it's grown, you know, it's farmed, it's harvested, and hopefully it's being done in, in good ways, but it's not a wild resource Editor's note. <laughs> please edit. Please erase the fact that I said resource. We we should talk about that too, though. Um, yeah, it's not wild. It's not it's not a wild living thing like salmon. Mm. And to me, that's a big difference. But but it's also you know the product of thousands of years of of agriculture um, too. That's just kind of that's uh, if without that, I don't know what would we eat here. You know, we're, we're so far removed from the hunter-gatherer ways of, of long ago. Well, Bristol Bay supplies half of the world's supply of sockeye salmon. And we know we're in a, we are hopefully, uh, knock on wood, um, coming into a space any day now, frankly. Uh, we're, we're expecting to hear news about from the EPA about... Bristol Bay, and by the time you're listening to this, uh, hopefully it will be great news um, concerning uh, basically putting Pebble out of business and not issuing them a permit. Um, now, there's a lot of things, and I seriously want to have a part two to this conversation, but to, to wrap the conversation up today, um, as you know, you've been involved in this. It's taken decades fighting the proposed pebble mine and the money behind that um, from giant mining resource extraction industries. There are other critical salmon issues like the transboundary mining issue in Southeast Alaska, like the Snake River and restoring the Snake River. And and we're going to be exploring those in in my next film. Um, But what, from your perspective, to kind of wrap the thought up about place and this idea of activism for place, what can we learn from what's happened by the indigenous-led efforts in Bristol Bay and apply those toward the efforts that need to continue to move forward to protect the salmon we have left and to restore the the places that have been um, torn apart by human industrialization? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I, I, I think there's a, there's a couple parts to your question there, but uh, what I have certainly learned from indigenous-led efforts is um, they are coming at these issues with a very, not only a different worldview, um, but a different, uh, just a different way of doing things. Um, over and over again, I've always heard from indigenous people, it's, you know, we are rich as long as we have the land. We mm. are rich as long as we can continue our customary and traditional ways. You know, we are a rich people. Um, we have always been here. We will always continue to be here. Um, but I also always hear from them um, in, in, in when they're advocating and uh, for who they are as the people, um, for their homelands, they I always hear, however we do this, we have to do it in a good way. And I remember the very first time I heard, uh, it was an elder, a native elder say that. It's like, it's like, we have to do this in a good way. And I didn't, at the time, I didn't really understand what that meant. Um, in my mind, everything was always portrayed as a battle, as a fight. Um, and I've learned from indigenous people, they're very strong, very enduring, but this concept of doing things in a good way. Hmm. I, I've come to understand. It's like, you know, we, we are our actions. And if we go into everything fighting and, and viewing it as this battle and, and us versus them and, and whatever, it's like, I don't think that's a good way of doing things. I, I think the good way of doing things, as I've come to learn um, from indigenous people, is you know, having integrity, um, being very careful, like what you say and what you think, because that's going to translate into how you act and, and react. Um, so I, I love this, uh, this concept of doing things in a good way. Mm. Um, I, I try and embody that now in my own work. Um, I, I realize a lot of issues like Bristol Bay or and, and don't get me wrong, like these are really serious issues. Like you're looking at like wholesale destruction of, you know, incredible habitat, like some of the best habitat in the world for salmon. Like, like that's what we're looking at. So it, I think it's hard from a certain mindset not to go into these issues in a way that isn't one of almost war, you know, and a battle and a fight. Um, but I, I think... I, I think when you, I don't know, for me personally anyway, I do not want to be the bearer of doom and gloom, and I don't want to be like perpetuating this, this constant state of being in a fight. Um, and so I've really made a conscious decision in my own work, um, and I'm trying not to sugarcoat issues. I have to be careful of that too, but I've truly tried to make a conscious decision of it's like, this is a story of love. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a story of of love for place and love for community and love for the very thing, the salmon that is, that is enabling this unbelievable, beautiful way of life. Let's tell that story. Um, does it make headlines? <laughs> you know, do stories of love make headlines? Not necessarily in our modern, uh, you know, uh, the Western world, you know, that we currently live in, but... But does it build community? Like, absolutely. You know, fights and battles, th those divide communities. You know, but love for place, for ways of life, for each other, that's what builds community. And it's community that's going to have any chance of saving salmon habitat anywhere, whether it's in Alaska 
whether it's here in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, I've certainly learned that um, through indigenous people, you know, this idea of do things in a good way. Um, so that's, that is definitely spilled over uh, into me and, and how I want to portray uh, the work that I do and tell the stories um, that I'm telling. Beautiful. We share that as well. Um, you know, conflict breeds headlines, <clears throat> love endures, and it is what binds everything mm-hmm. that, that endures. Um, I'm going to ask you three more questions. One, what's next for you? Yeah. What's, yes, <laughs> I, I, the one you love, the question you love from your parents, from your friends, from your, your old pal Mark. What, what are you working on? You know, it's interesting. So when when my first book, uh, Salmon in the Trees, first was published, um, you know, and you had mentioned earlier in the conversation that, you know, you're birthing an idea, right? Well, that is really what I felt like when that book came out. That um, was a three-year project. Um, and I, I, I tell people, it's like, you know, I... I feel like I was pregnant for three years and then I gave birth to this book because that's what it, you're nourishing, you're nurturing this whole way. There are ups and downs. And by the time you're holding this book in your hands, it's like, oh, you know, I just gave birth. So then I started to give presentations, you know, about salmon in the trees and, you know, doing book tours and that kind of thing. And the very first presentation I gave, you know, gave the presentation, question and answer afterwards and somebody raised their hand what are you working on now and I was so taken aback by that question because it's like I just gave birth it's like you don't now abandon the child like now you have to spend time raising it right (laughs) and nurturing that along so um anyway so that that's kind of an aside but to your question so but now I'm used to that question because I get it every single time, mm-hmm. no matter what mm-hmm. kind of presentation. Oh, what are you working on now? Um, and I, I do try and explain to people. It's like, again, you don't just pop out a book and then move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could. And I think a lot of authors uh, and, and you know artists maybe do that. But I make my books to try and make a difference. Mm-hmm. And the only way that they can have a chance of making a difference is if I'm giving presentations, interacting with people, educating people, partnering with nonprofit groups and government agencies that are working um, to protect habitat and protect ways of life. Um, So what's next (laughs) is really a continuation of what I've been doing Mm. for the last, gosh, 15, 16 years now uh, with both books. It's a lot of partnering, again, with with groups, uh, with agencies, with really whoever is working on uh, protecting salmon habitat and the ways of life that they they make possible. We share that in common as well. Uh, I have the same same approach, um, really nurturing and seeing the project get out into the world and then do what it needs to do. Um, so I feel you. All right. So pretend time. Let's just pretend <laughs> it could happen the, given the, <laughs> the environs of late, but uh, let's just pretend your house was in the path of a flooding river and you only had time to obviously get your loved ones, your, your critters out uh, if you have critters. But uh, if you could just take one physical thing, what would that thing be? Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Oh, what a question. Um, One physical thing. Hmm. I 
you really have to think about that. You know, you know, a lot of people, and I, I have thought about this a little bit, but a lot of people actually have thought about it so much, like they've got it prepared, right? It's like all the photo mm-hmm. albums, mm-hmm. all the memories, all the photo albums are like in a box ready to go. Mm-hmm. Like if I, I've, I've had neighbors tell me that. I'm like, mm-hmm. really? Wow, you're like, you're that prepared, <laughs> which I find impressive. And yeah, I mean, memories... Uh, I, I think I've come to realize it's like, yeah, yes, I'd like to have the photos, the images that evoke memories. But if all of those, if I couldn't get all those out, I'd still have the memories, right? Still have that. So I, I think I'd be okay <clears throat> without that. You know, I don't know. I, I, I think when I was younger, I would have told you everything I could grab, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I think would, yeah. too much. I just grab whatever I could and go. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I think as I've gotten older, I just realize material things are just not important. I mean, and granted, I think I'm saying that from a privileged perspective as well. Um, certainly, there are. I think there are. If I really had to think about it, there are things that are important. But most physical things, material things, can all be replaced. I mean, anything that you really need <clears throat> could be replaced. I don't know. I, I, I really, <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I, well, I let's, let's take it out of the physical realm then. Two, two <clears throat> things, let's put it in the spiritual realm, about you. If you could only take two things, two traits that make Amy, Amy, what would you take? Oh, okay, that's easy. Curiosity. Yeah, don't want that to go away. Um, and I, you know, just the, the ability to connect with people and move about in the world in a good way, uh, and and just that that innate ability to meet a stranger on the street and and try and make some kind of connection there. Amy Gulick, doing it the good way, author of Salmon in the Trees and the Salmon Way. Where can folks check out your work and follow along with what you're doing? Oh, uh, easily. Uh, so my website's uh, amygulick.com, A-M-Y-G-U-L-I-C-K.com, uh, thesalmonway.org, and salmoninthetrees.org. Uh, and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the, all the usual suspects. All the usual. <laughs> well, uh, it's so good to be together in person and do this, and we will do another one down the trail. I, I think there's lots more to talk about, so um, we'll stay tuned for that. And... Um, I'll let you have the last word. <laughs> um, well, there, there's one more concept or topic I want to talk about, and it, sure. it, it came up when I said the word resource, and I caught mm. myself. Mm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, hit it. Yeah. So you had asked me you know, early on, you know, what was the entry point for the Salmon Way? Mm-hmm. And there was, uh, there was a conversation uh, that I had that was one of those conversations you have that just won't leave your head. Um, and... So I look back on that conversation I had with with someone as that was another big entry point uh, into the Salmon Way. So this was a woman I met in Sitka when I was working on Salmon in the Trees. And it was very chance encounter, very brief encounter. She's a Native woman. Uh, she has since passed. Uh, she's, she's not with us now, but uh, she was a master weaver and um, uh, clinket. And... I was walking through uh, an area, a public space, you know, there are other people walking through, and she was one of the artists um, that was featured uh, in, this, in this space, and she was weaving this gorgeous, you know, Chilkat robe, uh, which is traditionally made out of mountain goat wool. And next to her loom, she had a, 
a mountain goat hide there, and she encouraged people to touch it and stroke it and just kind of see, you know, what the mountain goat wool felt like. And so I'm stroking this wool, and she's weaving away on this beautiful robe, and then she also had her her incredible basketry next to there, and I'm looking at the raw materials that she had laid out for the baskets, and these were spruce roots and cedar bark, and, and the whole thing was just beautiful. And I'm stroking this, this mountain goat you know, hide, and I'm looking at the spruce roots and the cedar bark, and I say to her, I say, wow, you know, with all these, these plentiful resources in your homeland, it's easy to see how your people have thrived. And she stopped what she was doing, and she looked me square in the eye, and she said, resources? She said, the mountain goat, the trees, the salmon, the bear, these aren't resources. We have relationships with the goat and the tree and the bear and the salmon. And again, it was another one of those light bulb clicking on moments. And it's like, oh my gosh. And then she proceeded to tell me about these relationships. And I had never up until that point really spent a lot of time thinking about the difference between resources and relationships. And I think that this ties back into this idea of a home stream Mm. and being grounded or not having a home stream and not feeling grounded. Um, I think if you have a home stream, you live in relationship with your food, clearly. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in the case of salmon, you live in relationship with the other people who share that home stream. You don't think of salmon or trees as commodities, or, or, and really that's what the word resources uh, means to me. Um, but if you're ungrounded, if you don't have a home stream, you don't know where your food comes from. It's like everything's a resource now. Everything's a commodity. And I think when you think in terms of resources, you just – you don't think about where they come from and, and what happens. Like say when you're taking salmon out of a stream or when you're taking trees from a forest. You're just like, oh, here's lumber. Here's copper tubing. Here's frozen fish. Um, whereas people who have relationships, it's like, here's a salmon. Mm. Let's give thanks to this beautiful fish who just gave its life so that we could continue to live. Here's a, here's a tree that now we're turning into a totem pole or a longhouse or, um, you know, a a spruce root hat or something that's going to protect us or, Mm. you know, something like that. So I always encourage people, um, when the word resources starts to roll out of your tongue <laughs> or off of your tongue, try and catch yourself and replace it with the other R word, which is relationships. And so when you do that, watch how your mind shifts. And it's, it, for me, it was incredibly profound when I started doing that because I would say things like, oh, well, you know, it's easy to see again how, you know, all these resources allowed you to thrive. Whereas if I say it's easy to see how these relationships have allowed you to thrive. That Very my different. mind just did a like a complete 180 when I started to replace those those words. And so I try really hard now to never use the word resources and always think in terms of relationships. Um, and I try and encourage other people to do it too. And uh, it's again, it's I encourage you all to try it. And and it's it's pretty profound. And it's given me just a little bit of an inkling, again, into the lives of particularly Alaska Native people. Um, they, they, that's how they think. That is their worldview. It's all relationships. And so they think a lot about if a tree's or if a forest is going to get clear cut 
or um, a mine is going to be built on their home stream, um, that's going to affect everything um, and their entire being and their way of seeing and their way of, of living in the world. And I just don't think those of us in the Western world, we, we, we're not taught to think that way. Um, we're usually not raised to think that way. Um, and this is not, uh, it's not necessarily a criticism of, <clears throat> of well, I guess it is. <laughs> it's a criticism of, of our society. Certainly. It's like if, we, if we're taught to think holistically, we're going to make very different decisions. And I think we're going to make a lot better decisions. So this concept, this idea, the difference between resources and relationships, that was clearly an entry point into the Salmon Way. And it's definitely a message I want other people to think about. Got nothing to add to that. <laughs> that is the last word in, in a beautiful way. And you're right. It it just shifts perspective instantly. Amy Gulick, thank you so much. We'll see you down the trail. Thank you. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thanks for joining us here on Say What You Love. If you'd like to support our work, you can subscribe to this podcast through your favorite podcatcher or at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. And if you like these conversations, you can help keep them coming your way by giving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. For photos, follow us on Instagram at SaveWhatYouLovePodcast. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Mark Titus, and edited by Patrick Troll. Say What You Love is a partnership between Ava's Wild Stories and Magic Canoe in collaboration with the Salmon Nation Trust. And this episode was recorded on the traditional homelands of the Duwamish people, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to this land and water. <laughs>